Today we're going to have on the show Iyad el-Baghdadi and Belabes Ben-Kreda. Iyad el-Baghdadi is one of the most prominent human rights activists who rose to prominence during the Arab Spring protests, and his work is covered around the world. He is one of the top voices in the online Arab world and has been published at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Foreign Policy, among other outlets. He also runs a podcast called The Arab Tyrant Manual. Iyad is a stateless Palestinian who was born in Kuwait and raised in the United Arab Emirates. He is now a political refugee in Norway. Iyad, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. Uh, Belbas Benkrada is an Algerian German social innovator and the founder of the Munathara Initiative, an Arab online and television debate forum that promotes the voices of youth, women, and marginalized communities in the Arab public. He was a recipient of the 2013 Democracy Award of the National Democratic Institute and in 2016 became a World Fellow at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. Bellabes is currently a senior research scholar at Yale Law School. Bellabes, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Arab Spring and its aftermath, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, social media and technology in the Middle East, and more. Uh, so let's start off. Um, both of you have made extensive use of, of, of social media and modern technology to forward the cause of debate, to forward the cause of social justice, uh, especially in the Arab world. Um, can each of you, uh, maybe starting with Bella Best, can, can each of you tell me a little bit about what you've done and um, your thoughts on, on how social media has contributed to your cause? Well, one of the ways in which I have used technology in my work to advance uh, the mission that, I'm, that I care about is uh, by um, using technology to lower the barriers for people to express their opinions uh, on critical conversations about the future of their countries. Just like Iyad's work, my uh, activism originated at uh, the time of the Arab Spring in early 2011, and this is actually the first time we also met. And the you know we we saw we saw that there was an opening at the time. There was an emerging public sphere in the Arab world, and people were you know in, essentially emancipated themselves from imposed narratives. I found that incredibly powerful and started a debate forum that uses technology to radically lessen the barriers for people to enter debates and, uh, you know, allows some of the most neglected voices of the Arab public sphere to be heard. So youth, women, marginalized communities. That is the way that we have used um, social media to advance our mission. All right. Um, so, and... Uh, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you also have used uh, social media, uh, Twitter in particular, but whatever you know you have uh, drawn upon, and 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 why these technologies or these social media have emerged. So I often explain the way or the reason why we use Twitter uh, is it's, it was almost kind of by a process of elimination because it was the only outlet available to us at the time. Um, we lived in, in the Arab world in countries that didn't really have a lot of press freedom. Uh, we didn't have access to traditional media. Um, you know, 
newspapers or magazines or you know um, television networks or something like that. And at the same time, we didn't have uh, mature NGO laws. It's not like if you want to express your activism or express yourself, it, 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 Twitter was the only outlet available to us. Uh, and that was initially what why we kind of took to the medium immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where this new public sphere kind of arose almost in, in one glorious moment out of almost nowhere. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I was, and I was like, Balabas and I were speaking earlier, and you know how dictators are actually very good at separating people and keeping playing people against each other and keeping people, um, you know, within their communities and within their own societies, kind of uh, separated. Um, and what really, ha- and, and you know, before the Arab Spring, that's kind of how pe- people hung out with their own group, like whether it's political group, socialists hung out with socialists, Islamists hung out with, so- with Islamists. But it was also on a national- nationality basis, on a tribal basis, on a sectarian basis. Um, and then you have this glorious moment where everybody pours into the same space, into the same physical space and also in the same online space. And that's where we meet each other for the first time. And this community kind of arose uh, almost from nowhere. Okay, so um, can you uh, take me in, in, a little bit into when the Arab Spring broke out? Uh, we had the uprisings in Tunisia. Uh, you were in the United Arab Emirates. Um, how quickly did people take to then uh, Twitter, take to social media? Was it something that was uh, uh, quick and spontaneous, or did it take some time to to pick up? So keep in mind that Twitter kind of got a reputation for being associated with uprisings in 2009 with the Iranian uprising. Um, So it was already kind of uh, thought of as a medium which is disruptive, but also a medium which is... um, um, uh, the primary news medium if you want to cut the middleman, right? Uh, at the same time, a lot of the protest, uh, especially with the Egyptian uprising, a lot of the protest, um, uh, the calls for the protest, the initial protest, the, the, the first call, I think, I remember sharing it on January 18th, a month, like like a week before the actual yeah. uprising. Uh, and this is like Sma'a Mahfouz, and basically there's a whole there's a really interesting story around that. Uh, but it was on Facebook, you know? It was basically a Facebook group set up by Wa'al Ghunayim and uh, Abdurrahman Mansour. Yeah. Um, uh, who are friends and you know like we, yeah really interesting to like it's really interesting to catch up with them whenever I'm here uh, it was set up uh, in 2010 after um, the Egyptian police basically beat beat up uh, Khaled Saeed a young um, uh, a young man from Alexandria to death uh, on trumped up charges they basically accused him of being a drug dealer or you know drug user abuser um, and of course, they created this group called Kulana Khalid Said, or We Are we All are Khalid Said. We are all Khalid Said. We are all Khalid Said. And that became the vehicle for all of this activism. And that's where they actually put. So basically, what I'm, what I'm saying here is that social media had a role right from the start yeah. with, in mobilization. But at the same time, um, uh, social media wasn't the only. It was, it, it was, it was an interesting use of social media, but uh, there were physical and social network, I mean, real real social networks on the ground, labor movements, student student unions, mm. um, 
as, as well as social connections that kind of, um, that you know, you, you put out the call on social media, yeah. but then you have to have structures on the ground and networks, existing networks on the ground to activate that. And just about this piece, Iyad, maybe you could uh, help my memory. Uh, Asma Mahfouz's famous viral video, uh, how much do you think that contributed to people going to the streets on the 25th of January compared to, or Kulina uh, Khalid Saeed, we are all Khalid Saeed? So, I mean, it's, it's difficult to answer the question because um, because people people basically have two stories here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because in twenty in, in after twenty eleven, uh, there was a lot of euphoria about how social media is going to change everything. Social media is going to basically be, yeah. uh, uh, you know, a power for for good. Yeah. And 2011, 2011 Sorry, being 20, the beginning of the the Arab Spring. Exactly. Yeah. So up, actually, I mean, I would say two thousand nine with the Iranian uprising, really. Yeah. So there was this euphoria, and then and then it was kind of validated by in in twenty eleven with the the Arab uprisings. Right. Um, and in 2012, there was a huge growth in the users of social media in the Middle East. So, like, if you actually look at the statistics, the biggest growth in using social media and people going onto social media happened after the Arab Spring, not before it. Right. Uh, 2012 was a pivotal year in, the, in that case. I think it was. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm if I'll be quoting the right statistics, but I think in 2012, the region uh, crossed uh, um, global average when it comes I, to internet I th- connectivity. I think, it was, I think it was 2014, if I'm not okay. mistaken. Yeah. yeah, but it was yeah. After but so you Arab see, Spring. basically, that that kind of surge actually happened after the Arab Spring. Yes. So there were there have been many uh, researchers and even many academics who are cautioning against attributing too much to social media. Right. Uh, but personally, because my experience was in social media, I tend to have uh, maybe a more uh, romantic view of, of the role of social media during that time, at least. Uh, even though my own role, I saw it, I didn't see my role as helping organize the protests at the time, 2011. Uh, I saw it as communicating with uh, in the English language, basically translating a lot of the stuff right. from Arabic to English. Um translating videos, for example, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of giving context to what's happening. Yeah. And that's when um, and that's when basically I started to build an audience, which is both. So a lot of my audience, and this basically continues to be the breakdown kind of of my audience. You have Arabic speakers mm-hmm. um, or Arabs who can access the English language. And you have uh, you know, English-speaking uh, Westerners or a global audience who um, want to understand or want to uh, access information about the Middle East from a voice from the Middle East. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's hard to tell whether Asma Mahfouz or um, or the the Facebook page. Uh, what I- exactly contributed, but it was the cumulative effect. These these were very very powerful uh, elements of the January twenty. I, mean, I mean, my own feeling is that Asma Mahfouz's video it went viral. Can um, you just describe it uh, briefly? Well, Asma Mahfouz is uh, is an Egyptian activist, uh, and she was a member of the April sixth movement, which is basically uh, associated really with um, uh, with uh, you know the the Egyptian left. We can say. Uh, and also did a lot of work with uh, labor unions, uh, a lot of support also for labor unions. And basically, it was also associated with Kifaya, which was basically a movement towards, uh, you know, the end, the tail end of the Mubarak years against Mubarak running again or uh, um, uh, nominating his own son. Uh, 
Um, so they were active, I believe, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm quoting the right year, but I think they've been active since 2008. Yeah. Um, and it was actually a very small group. They used to have protests, and Asma would, would say that uh, there would be more security forces than protesters at these protests. And people would look at them being beaten, being, you know, tear gas, etc. And they'd look at them with pity, you know. They're like, look at these poor idealistic kids. So when, when they converged on Tahrir Square on January 25th, and, you know, January 25th is actually police day yeah. in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, and Abdurrahman Mansour was actually the guy who suggested the date, and he's like, why don't we actually call for protests on that date? Because it's actually a day in the middle of the week, I believe, uh, which is a day off. So people like people have the option. They're actually they're, they're not missing work that day, right? Mm. Um, and I think it completely blew everyone's, everyone's mind. It yeah. completely exceeded everybody's expectations when they, they thought it's going to be another one of those protests where there's actually more security forces than protesters. Right. And then, you know, it was you know, enough protesters to completely fill the streets and completely overwhelm any expectation or any ability, let's say, of the security forces. Um, and of course, uh, three days later on January 28th, it was, I believe, a Friday. And that was that was the day when, like, on January 25th, we kind of, that, that's when I started tweeting, on January 25th. Um, but we did not really, it didn't really click that this is a revolution. This is a large protest, but not a revolution, right? It was really in January 28th that, oh my God, this is a revolution. Uh, this is when the security forces were overwhelmed. They tried to suppress the protests and they couldn't. And that's when we started to see street sellers, housewives, old people, you know, children in the, in the street. It, this, this wasn't a political elite anymore. This is a popular uprising. Right. Yeah. yeah. So Asma's video came out on, I, I, I think I shared it on January uh, 18th. Yeah. And she was basically calling f people to, to join her. She's like, I'm going on, on January 25th. Come with me. To Tahrir Square. To Tahrir Square. And she, she's basically saying, uh, she was basically trying to, to, to do her own counter narrative. So, so it's kind of like, you know, like Egyptian society tends to be quite conservative, socially conservative. He's like, if you think that I'm a woman and I'm a girl and I shouldn't be at these protests and I'm endangering myself by, you know, standing in front of the security forces, be a man and come and come protect me, yeah. you know. And I like I like that part. So and I ended up translating it uh, into English. I basically gave it subtitles. I rem I think I did that. Um, I, don't, I don't remember the date. I think uh, towards the end of January. I think it it, uh, it went viral on beginning of February or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to sleep and waking up and it has like 250,000 views. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I think my translation of that from Arabic, so from Arabic to English is now the standard translation in many, uh, many uh, books. So let me ask, um, if you're using something like Twitter, um, I mean, my experience in South Africa when we were doing university protests and shutting down the universities and actually making an actual or putting power those with power in an uncomfortable position to the extent that police forces are now showing up uh they're not shooting to kill so it was very different uh but at the same time um it, things can get intense right and they can get a little scary and one of the things i noticed as as i went along with these protests is that 
the perception and understanding of what it's like to interact with forces of repression, forces of violence, um, changes your outlook. Uh, you learn things about surveillance as you go along. You start to become more cognizant of the possibility of infiltration. Um, how has the use of social media uh, been something that uh, in the Arab world, people have learned about and evolved as those with power can also, I mean, look, if you're making a public post, for example, anybody can see it, right? And so people have to learn that, but there can also be infiltrators. Um, how has the, um, the act of learning how to utilize social media in the face of the, these kinds of threats um, unfolded for you? Well, in 2011, the, the systems of oppression, the dictators basically were not ready. Uh, and to be honest, we surprised ourselves. We surprised everybody. Like we didn't know that we're going to have an Arab Spring. And to be honest, we didn't even know what to call it. I mean, right now people call it the Arab Spring and you know, there's a lot of debates about like, what do we call it? Um, that, that wasn't very important for us. So we found ourselves in this position where we're actually using this technology because that was the only that was the only choice we had. Like we didn't have any other way to organize across borders um, um, at that time and to communicate with world media and to like put videos, for example, online saying that this is what's happening on the street. Uh, we didn't we didn't have any other option. So in in a sense. I'm kind of comparing it to people, for example, in uh, like stateless people, for example, who use Bitcoin because they don't, they can't have a bank account, uh, or you know, or, or they, they use basically PayPal, for example, because they can't have a bank account, uh, or even you know, people like um, people who use mobile phones because they don't don't have a landline in their village. In in a in a certain way, we actually were forced to use technology, and that's why we had to learn very quickly. But as I said, in 2011, the dictators were not ready. They were actually taken aback. And I think it took them a couple years before they organized their counter narrative. And that's when they started to, for example, pick up people for Facebook posts. Uh, but then they also started to, uh, you know, create their own uh, troll accounts and bot armies. And, you know, we're talking about this now with the Saudi troll armies after Jamal Khashoggi's death. Uh, but they actually started in 2013, uh, and we have been we have been uh, unfortunately uh, we've been warning against it since 2013, and it's kind of vo both a validation, but it's also incredibly frustrating that it took five years and all of this damage before uh, you know we're taking seriously on that. So maybe explain yet to listeners what what happened after the Arab Spring. We had uh, 2013 was uh, a pivotal year. Uh, what happened and maybe segue from there into your own story and what happened to you in 2014? So I, I think that the, the, the peak year of the Arab Spring was probably 2012. Uh, this is when we had kind of an intermediate period where of course, at the time, we were seeing some of the uprisings uh, becoming militarized, uh, like, for example, in uh, in the case of Syria. Syria wasn't as bad, near, not nearly as bad as now in 2012, but still, it had already become a civil war. Um, but especially in Egypt, Egypt was that big country that we always thought, if Egypt becomes a democracy, a functioning democracy, yeah. is going to change the entire region because yeah. it's 100 million people. Uh, second biggest Arab economy, um, and it has that historical and political and cultural weight. Um, 
And you know that's 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 a country that if it gets up on its feet can completely change the regional order. Uh, and so my involvement at that time was mostly with uh, Egyptian activists and within the Egyptian sphere. Um, and of course, some of the finest activists, some of the finest people I've ever met. Um, in 2013, of course, at, at the time we started to feel that there is this. You know, when I, when I said earlier that we kind of poured into the same square at once. And suddenly everybody's meeting everybody. Everybody's meeting and realizing that, you know, there are so many people of so many different, like there's such a, such a wide spectrum of different kinds of people in the society that we never actually interacted with uh, at this level before. People react in two different ways. Either they react by becoming more polarized because they don't like it. They don't like that, oh, there's so many different people. Uh, or people embrace the diversity. Mm. Right. In 2012 in particular, because of certain, I would say, really grievous mistakes, especially by the Islamists in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, there was an increase in political polarization. It was really reaching catastrophic levels. Mm. And I, be- I remember right now when I go back and read my tweets from 2012, uh, a lot of it is very alarmist. A lot of it is like uh, a catastrophe is going to happen. It's going- this is not going to end well. Mm. And in fact, in twenty in late twenty twelve, there was uh, there was those clashes in November, um, which in, in Arabic we call it al Tahadiyah clashes, uh, clashes, which is basically a, a, an area in, in in Egypt in Cairo. And these were seen as the final divorce between the Islamists, the Islamists, and the non-Islamist revolutionaries. Yeah. So basically, before that point, the Islamists and the non-Islamists. Uh, were kind of allied as revolutionary for- forces pushing uh, to kind of um, uh, uh, achieve or accomplish a transition to democracy. So that's to uh, knock Mubarak out of power? Uh, n- not just Mubarak, because th- by then we realized that it's not just Mubarak. We realized that Mubarak is simply a figurehead and a, and a representative of a system and that the real ruling establishment in Egypt is the e- Egyptian army. Mm. Uh, and we realized that they still have the power to, uh, I mean, they still hold the reins of power because at, th- at that time they had, uh, there's something called the Supreme Council of Armed Forces or SCAF okay. that took over power uh, after, because there was this period where the, the, the constitution had to be rewritten, elections had to be like, we, like there was no official uh, president at the time. So someone had to take the reins of the country and it was basically the armed forces. Uh, at the time, the Muslim Brotherhood thought that it is uh, it is strategic for them to work with the army, with the with SCAF, um, and you know it ended up very bloody with clashes, and that was basically a moment of divorce when the non-Islamist revolutionaries started to see the Islamists as not allies. Yeah. The Muslim Brotherhood, particularly. I mean, let 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 me not say all Islamists, but the Muslim Brotherhood, particularly, as not allies but opponents. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's reached the peak with twenty. You know, twenty twelve was also when we had the the uh, the, the elections. The Muslim Brotherhood uh, basically fielded the candidate. Initially, they said to work, they're not going to field a candidate, um, and then they changed their mind and they fielded a candidate. We had the first round of elections, where we had five different candidates, and they were not so. It wasn't like the, the, at the time. I think the the, the highest percentage was twenty four percent. So you know, it wasn't exactly like one 
one person or one candidate was dominating the scene. It, they were basically neck to neck, like five of them. And this. but there's also others who were not like they basically were not compete, competing, you know. Um, so there was a lot of bitterness at the Muslim Brotherhood for fielding a candidate. And then we had this comical, almost tragically comical situation where we had uh, uh, in, 20, in the second round of the elections, we had Mursi, who is the representative of the Muslim Brotherhood, and we had Shafiq, who is actually the last prime minister of, um, Mubarak. of Mubarak. So it's almost like we have almost uh, you know, a choice of, uh, uh, between a Muslim Brotherhood candidate and a representative of the, of the regime that, just, that, we just, uh, that, that you know, the Egyptian masses have just uh, uh, gotten rid of. Uh, and of course, in that case, uh, it was a difficult choice for a lot of people. A lot of uh, uh, Egyptians did not really want the Muslim Brotherhood, but they still voted because for them it was the you know um, the least bad option, I guess. Hmm. Is that why is that? Is that there just wasn't enough support for a, a secular candidate? Uh, no, I think that. Uh, I, honestly, I mean, now in, in retrospect, I think that a lot of it was. Uh, Electoral, ele- the electoral system itself. I mean, it was first past the post, which is, I think, a terrible way to have elections in a highly polarized society right after dictatorship. I think that had we had more of a proportional representation system or more of a, you know, a kind of a, um, what do they call it, instant runoff, I think. Mm. I think Mohammed Morsi won by 52%, right? Like it was very yeah, close. it was very, very close. And the fact is that uh, and I wrote an article for op- for uh, you know for Open Democracy at the time, or I can because I was tabulating the results at the time. Like one of the things that one of the many um, you know campaigns I did was uh, actually uh, uh, tabulating the results of the elections live as they ha- as they as as they were going on. And I remember it's like I had like thirty hours you know of no sleep and just basically just focused on that. Uh, and I remember saying that it was really the the first round of the elections were more interesting than the second. Because the first round actually gave you more of an insight into the uh, ideological spectrum in Egypt, because you had five candidates, and you can kind of uh, like no Islamist is going to vote for uh, Shafiq mm. when there's two, uh, like when there's Ab- Abu Futuh and Morsi, where they're both Islamists uh, on on the, on the ballot. At the same time, no secularist is going to vote for for an Islamist. So you can basically kind of try to assess mm. where they stand, uh, and it was even. It was almost like a third, a third, a third. Yeah, you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, coming back to the timeline, what happened in 2013 is like but the end of 2012, or you know, um, by the time we were into 2013, the level of polarization has really gotten to such a catastrophic level that it created an opening for certain Gulf regimes, uh, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Even though I think the United Arab Emirates, you know, my former country, was basically the impetus behind a lot of it, uh, to start to agitate and start to intervene and interfere into Egyptian politics uh, by creating a big campaign against uh, Morsi, mm-hmm. to remove Morsi. And that was basically the, um, I don't remember, it's... it's uh, Tamarud. Tamarud, yeah, the Tamarud movement. Um, so, uh, so talk about Tamarud very quickly. Tamarud basically was a movement that pushed for... Uh, it's a fake movement, essentially. It, I mean, there are many people who believed in it, but actually, eventually, we would find out that a lot of its funding, and a lot of the support that came that that came basically came from, um, you know, basically, 
collusion with the United Arab Emirates government mm. and uh, mm. and Saudi government. Uh, and they wanted, you know, they they wanted to remove the Muslim Brotherhood from power, um, and they colluded with the Egyptian army. Uh, and it kind of came to a head because they 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 decided that the big protests are going to happen on June thirtieth, twenty thirteen. And I was very skeptical about it from the start, and especially that they had the nar- the narratives used in the messaging, and you know the the it was all about revenge. Like this is when we're going to take vengeance. This is when we're going to take revenge, mm-hmm. and this is when we're going to destroy the Muslim Brotherhood, etc. Revenge. What's the bad blood? The bad blood. Basically, it was a whole history of um, you know of you know there were street clashes almost continuously. Um, there was a feeling that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood betrayed the revolution. Uh, and there's always a f- there was also a feeling that we just didn't, couldn't trust these guys, you know, because they're so opaque. Uh, the way that they did, like they're very tribal in their even even within themselves is like it almost felt like the movement itself internally is not very democratic or not democratic enough. Um, so tw- in, on June thirtieth, we had these massive protests that were so obviously engineered and helped and aided by the Egyptian army institution, hmm. um, and that's when. Uh, the Egyptian army, a few hours later, issued um, um, a, a, an ultimatum to Morsi, saying, you need to step down, uh, or we're going to uh, basically force you. Hmm. Uh, and I remember these days because they were extremely tense. There are many people who were, you know, like pro-protest. They're like, you know, it's a protest, it's a democracy. So like protesting, there's nothing wrong with protesting. But the moment you start appealing to the army to step in, in a democracy, yeah. That's when things become very uncomfortable. Yeah, and on July fourth, I was. It's like I'm using my democratic right to ask the army to abolish democracy. Yeah, of course. For a lot of these people, they're like, no, it's a corrective measure. We just want the army to remove him, and then we want, uh, you know, early elections. They didn't really want the army to rule, but they thought, if we have to, if we have to use the army to get him out of power, then might as well. Mm. Of course, that was incredibly naive, and a lot of these people who even campaigned for that are in jail. Or in exile, yeah. you know. So I think I believe it was July third that um, yeah. the army eventually uh, intervened and removed Morsi by force. Um, and it was so obvious at the time. I mean, that's when it became very clear to me that my country, the United Arab Emirates, um, is heavily involved in this. Um, and the the. The period after that was very gray because on, on the one hand, we were thinking, um, I mean, they pro- what they promised at the time is like, yeah, there are going to be early elections. We're going to basically, uh, it's a, just a corrective measure. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to vote on a new constitution and we're going to do this right, you know. And of course, that that's not what happened. And yeah. on, in August, uh, I remember, I believe that the, the week that the Arab Spring died, or the week that basically turned it from spring to to like the most desolate winter ever was between the 14th and the 21st of August, 2013. Uh, it was a week that, you know, 14th of August, we had uh, uh, a very traumatic event in Egypt, uh, the Rabah massacre. That's when the Egyptian army tried to clear out or basically cleared out um, two protest camps um, of supporters of President Morsi, Morsi 
um, who are you know, most of them are Muslim Brotherhood, but they're also sympathizers with the Muslim Brotherhood as well. Of course, by force, mm-hmm. uh, and ended up killing up to a thousand people right. in five hours. Um, a lot of like uh, a lot of our friends were, um, you know, either covering the event as journalists or actually at the events. Um, and you know, it was the largest peacetime killing in modern Egyptian history. Yeah. Um, a week later, that's August twenty-first. We had the Ghouta massacre, and that's when Assad. Uh, gazed his own people in Ghouta, which is basically one of the neighborhoods uh, of, of Damascus, uh, killing again uh, over a thousand people. And crossing Obama's red and line. And crossing Obama's red line. Um, and there was absolutely no response from the world uh, to either. Uh, there was basically just hand-wringing, and it was very clear to us that we're on our own. And it was also very clear to us that we know exactly what happens next. Uh, the jihadists, their narrative comes on top. Mm. And it was only a few months later, less than a year later, when ISIS had a caliphate. Yeah. So, um, and we still haven't talked about your particular uh, story, but we'll come back to that, I guess, Mike. Sure. So, um, all right. So we had uh, Iran, 2009. We had uh, rumblings in Egypt. And then 2011, Tunisia was uh, a kind of watershed moment. Um, and that then, uh, the example then spread to other places. Um, that includes United Arab Emirates. Well, it I mean, includes, it was 20 uh, uh, out of, there's 22 Arab countries, right? Or, you know, yeah. countries that that are, you know, part of the Arab League. And 20 of them had uh, some kind of mass protests. Yeah. Uh, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar were the only two countries that didn't. I mean, there were some protests, some activities, but it didn't really escalate to the point of saying that it's a protest movement. And of course, like they have their own particularities. Both countries are mostly uh, populated by migrants, and the native population are basically uh, a minority. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, you had mentioned o- Obama. I know in Egypt, uh, Obama, the uh, year before he was, uh, before Mubarak was ousted, uh, Obama was there kind of praising him, right? Um, at least on uh, very friendly terms. And, um, you know, uh, you mentioned that in Egypt, uh, other uh, countries get involved. Uh, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, Um what has, in your view, been, and then you had you had mentioned Syria as well. Um, what has been the role of the West? What what has been the role of the United States? Many people uh, have made the argument that the United States' role in the Middle East has been geopolitical. That the invasion of Iraq in two thousand three was uh, basically based on lies about weapons of mass destruction, the argument shifted to democracy, but there's a lot of hypocrisy in that. Um, But even moving back, uh, you have an old alliance between the United States and Saddam Hussein during the 1980s. You have the um, uh, meddling into the affairs of Iran in the 1950s. Um, You have a very inglorious history of Western involvement there. Um, So now the Arab Spring comes along and, and, uh, and, you know, really explodes in 2011, what has been, in your view, the role 
of the United States in, in the West? Well, I'm, I'm going to take you back from 2009, actually, rather than 2011. In 2009, Obama gave his now famous or infamous Cairo speech, um, which now in retrospect I see as a huge occasion. And that's when Obama basically came to Cairo to speak to the Muslim world. Um, and he spoke about you know shared values. He said that we want basically a reset in the relationship, and we want to build a relationship based upon common, uh, you know, common values and and common interests. Um, and that was incredibly powerful to see an American president. Like you just summarized, you just summarized the um, you know the history of American involvement in the region and how you know destructive it has been. And no wonder. I mean, the region has been very, very anti-American, right? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of support also for religious extremism. Yeah, and I mean, I, I actually just finished writing a book about this very topic. You know, we call it the vicious triangle, terrorist tyrants in the West and how they basically kind of play off each other. Um, but yeah, so it was astounding to have a U.S. president have that humility hmm. to come to our turf and to speak to us and to say, you know, so he didn't actually say we're sorry for the Iraq war. But he almost did, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And it was such a huge letdown to see what happened or what decisions were taken by the Obama administration after that. Because the Obama administration, 2008 to 2016, you have these two historical opportunities, the Iranian uprising in 2009, the Arab Spring in 2011. And it was such, I mean... Uh, uh, we, we were talking about this earlier, Bill Abbas, and you know there, the people who follow me on Twitter know that I have been very critical of Obama. Uh, but at the same time, it's because we had these expectations yeah. set by Obama, yeah. right? Uh, like, like for example, with Trump, we ac- we don't actually have any expectations, and when you don't have expectations, there's no disappointment, hmm. right? Um, so a week after the Cairo speech, that's when the Iranian uprising started. And you know what those those protesters were saying in the street? They were saying, Obama, Obama, you're either with us or you're with them. Because Obama's uh, 2008 presidential campaign actually influenced the 2009 Iranian elections. So basically the, 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 the candidates in 2009 in the Iranian elections, even though we say it's a selection, it's not an election, it's not a real election uh, in, 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 in the classical liberal democratic sense, um, but they tried. They tried to emulate Obama's narratives, right? Um, and of course, of course, there was a lot of uh, international uh, outcry over what happened, uh, what the Iranian regime basically did after that, all the killings and you know arrests, arrests, etc. But actually, it was a low-level uprising continuing till till 2011. So, like when the 2011 uprising uprisings in the Arab world happened, there were still sporadic protests. In fact, there were protests in. Iran in solidarity with the Arab Spring, mm. right? And this is this is something that's incredibly important to note right now with like the whole thing about Arab versus Iranian, Sunni versus Shia, to see that there was a moment where we stood in solidarity with each other uh, and when Iranians protested in solidarity with the Arabs, right? right? Um, so the real letdown really, I believe, came... Um, of course, in 2011, I felt that there was a period initially, because as you know, Mubarak was basically a Western ally, one of the most important, kind of one of the linchpins of the of the regional order. 
uh, we like the 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 Egyptians used to call him the fourth pyramid, right? Um, and to have him removed like that, um, I believe it it put it put the American administration on on the spot. Like you have to pick the right side of history over here. Um, and even though we had some kind of like it, it was it, their response was very checkered over here because, for example, when it comes to the Bahraini uprising, um, they 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 did not stand in solidarity with the people of Bahrain because Bahrain is basically an ally. Uh, the Gulf states are very important, uh, you know, American allies. Mm. Uh, they could not, and Obama did not could not contain the 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 really nefarious influence of these uh, these regimes. Um, in 2012 and, 20, and 2013 and how basically they funded, for example, a lot of militant activities in Syria uh, and in Libya later on. Uh, and they intervened in internal politics in Egypt. They basically created this axis of counter-revolutionary forces that wanted to push back against any march towards democracy or, or you know, or, or, or liberty in the region, really. But I think the pivotal moment, really, of of the kind of make or break moment was that week in August 2013. Right. right. When the Obama administration failed to hold the Egyptian army to account, failed to say we're not going to recognize, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, this coup. Yeah. In fact, they even avoided calling it a coup, you know. Mm. Uh, but also there was the the whole famous red line moment in, in Syria. And of course, we know right now from like like we kind of know this in, in retrospect because a lot of uh, um, you know at the time we're basically living through it, but now we we have access to uh, ex administration officials who basically describe this moment and how this decision was was being taken, mm. um, and that the the American response to the Ruta massacre to the chemical weapons massacre in in, in August 2013 was very much. Um, uh, tied to Obama's, the Obama administration's desire to have a deal with Iran. Um, so we say that the Iran deal was penned with Syrian blood. Um, and of course, after that, we had the whole explosion of jihadism in 2014, 2015. And of course, eventually the election of Trump, which was, again, kind of a real Kind of the, the last, the last nail in the coffin of talk a little bit, Iyad, about how um, Putin um, fits into this because this is also the period that uh, we see the rise of Putinism. Uh, we had protests in Russia at the end of 2012, and uh, Putin gets completely paranoid. Paradigms change, and uh, it was a seminal moment for uh, the Kremlin too. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I would say, in 2014 we had, uh, you know, the second wave uh, in um, was it 2014 that was, uh, uh, you know, the invasion of Crimea. Uh, I don't know. Just help me remember. I, I'm in I remember in February 2014, um, we had uh, we had kind of a second wave uprising in, in Ukraine. Hmm. Am I right? 2014. Yeah. Yeah. March 2014. March 2014. Um, and I remember it very clearly because this was like a few weeks before my own expulsion, before I was jailed in the United Arab Emirates. Um, and uh, when I spoke at the Oslo Freedom Forum in 2014, some of the people who spoke at the same, and you know, in the same, mm. uh, they were basically Ukrainian activists. So the, the fact is that Putin 
Putin basically is a classical, uh, you know, kind of archetypal dictator. Uh, corruption uh, or kleptocracy is actually the business model of dictatorship. Um, it's it's what gives it resilience and it's what gives us this economic ability to control society. Uh, and of course, a lot of the time when they, the way they do kleptocracy is by redefining what is or isn't legal, uh, by redefining what is and isn't property rights, for example, right? Um, in the case of uh, Putin, um, in 2013, because uh, the U.S. administration at the time, Obama needed to walk back the red line, right? Because he 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 couldn't like okay, uh, Assad has been overstepping the red line for a while, and then you have this enormous massacre, and there's pressure by Obama because Obama drew this red line, mm. but also Obama wants kind of um, you know an, an opening and out because he wants he wants an Iran deal, right? Yeah, um, he invites Putin into Syria. And he says, you know what, since Putin is an ally of Assad, we're going to entrust Putin with de, uh, you know, with uh, uh, removing Assad's, he, he's going to be the guarantor for removing Assad's chemical weapons. And we know that didn't happen, of course. Of course, yeah. And it's such a tragic history of trusting Putin. Yeah. Trusting Putin as he uh, doubled down on supporting uh, Assad, as he invaded Crimea, as he, you know, hacked the U.S. elections, mm. there's a whole history of 2013, or you might say, even say 2012, of enabling Putin and not understanding how destabilizing and how dangerous Putin is to the world order. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, Putin, you know, without uh, uh, an empowered and uh, and very determined Putin in the last few years, uh, you wouldn't have seen the same rise of authoritarianism across the world. I mean, I, I, I tend to look at Putin as a good tactician, but but not a good strategist. Um, I mean, we, we kind of, we kind of um, slightly, I think, get ahead of ourselves when we describe Russia as, uh, or we describe this as a new Cold War. I mean, I believe it is a Cold War, but at the same time, Russia is nowhere near um, the might of the USSR. No. Yeah. Not economically, not militarily. Not culturally, it doesn't have a unifying or universalizing ideology. Uh, it doesn't have strong allies, you know. Um, so it's actually like Putin's Russia is actually no match for a unified uh, Western front. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's very tragic to see Putin, again, like Putin, like uh, Gary Kasparov, uh, you know, who I, I, I admire greatly. And, uh, you know, uh, I really enjoy it when he retweets me. <laughs> On, on, on Twitter, because it likes validation, he's a great, uh, he's a great guy and a great uh, thinker on authoritarianism. Um, he describes, sorry, he describes Putin's game as poker. Mm. So he's like, poker is a blind game; you don't see the other person's cards. Chess, of course, uh, you know Kasparov is a chess grandmaster, right? So he's like, chess is the Western game because everything is open. This is how democracies work; they're transparent, right? Right. So he's like, you're not even playing the same game. Um, it's it's more like he doesn't have good cards. He does not have good cards, but he really knows how to play the game. And you guys are not even in the game. All right, well, th that's interesting. Um, if we're talking about new Cold War here, uh, China is the other country that comes up. Um, there's the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, um, 
Oh, okay, here I am. Um, okay, so uh, if we're talking about a new Cold War, uh, China is another country that, that comes up increasingly today. Uh, they have their Belt, Belt and Road Initiative, which uh, is building links um, along the Belt, which is, is along the... It's kind the, of a new Silk the, Road. Yeah, yeah. the seacoast and, mm. and then into uh, Eurasia. But they also have, uh, as far as I'm aware, at least some involvement um, in Middle Eastern affairs. Uh, wh- what has been your take on, on the ro- role of China in the Middle East? Well, China is very transactional about the way that it, it conducts its foreign policy or the way that it really conducts its uh, its foreign affairs in general and its, its military alliances. So its role mainly has been in supplying weapons because they don't really care who they sell weapons to so long they have money. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's not uh, China is not a strategic thinker or a strategic weight, and there's no universalizing um, ideology. And of course, it doesn't have a universalizing ideology, and the fact is that the reason why it's building this whole Belt and Road Initiative is because it feels insecure. Of course, and China is right now dependent on trade, for the for which is unusual if you look at the totality of Chinese history, at least since like the Middle Ages, for example. Uh, China has not been dependent on trade. It's been uh, that country which sells uh, its its goods, like its fantastic goods to the world, but doesn't really need the 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 the, the what do you say uh, the goods of the rest of the world. Um, when we have post-communist China right now, and it is post-communist. I mean, it's common. The Communist Party is just communist in name, really. Um, when in in that post-communist China, you have a situation where China is strategically dependent on trade, and that's why it is uh, stri- it's it's uh, it needs to protect its trade routes, and it cannot do that on, on when it comes to the sea routes because the sea routes basically for, basically first of all the only the only access to the rest of the ocean, the Pacific Ocean or the Indian Ocean, passes through other countries. Uh, and the the South China Straits are actually uh, relatively narrow, and they can be blockaded. Uh, and for that reason, China is also looking at you know a land route. The issue with that is passes through Xinjiang, which is basically a majority uh, Muslim area, and all the, the the regions around the you know neighboring Xinjiang is also Muslim countries. And this is kind of interestingly connected to the whole repression of the uh, you know in Xinjiang. Uh, so what I'm saying here is that China actually is not as strategically um, um, advantaged as we might think. China does not have a an, a universalizing ideology. It can't. It can be, of course, it can be an economic powerhouse because again, 1.3 billion people, right? Um, but I mean, India has a lot of people too, right? And we don't yeah, compare. I'm, China I mean, seems it, to be the the big power, other power. Right? It's because it's because it wasn't. It's it's always stood in opposition to the West, while India had a warm and you know uh, more or less a uh, uh, you know a friendly relationship with the West. It, India d- never defined itself as an anti-Western uh, uh, you know power, and of course, it's also the fact that India is nominally uh, a democracy, right? Uh, of course, they're having their own populist moment in India, but it's a democracy. It's the world's largest democracy. Um, so that's why we like we get nervous about it. there's also the fact that china seems so opaque to a lot of us uh india like indians basically speak english you 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 access their their public sphere and you know uh, you can actually get a good read on india right 
and you have Indian intellectuals explaining India to you, right? China feels opaque to a lot of us. Mm. Uh, but their involvement, coming back to your question, basically, what is China's involvement? It's very interesting that the, there's, there's two important points here. First is that China is cited by dictatorships in the Middle East as a model to be followed. Like, you can actually have a country which has an open and thriving economy with no political rights, mm. right? So that's their first their, That's their fir- first interest in the China model. Which is kind of a Western dogma. Uh, yeah, I mean we can we can we can, we can we can we can talk about that too. The second real interest is that they're always wondering, like, if the West dumps us, where do we go? Do we go to Russia? But Russia is is an ally of uh, of uh, of Iran, right? And Iran, the Iranian regime, is basically our our opponent in the region. So they're almost thinking that can we invite China to become you know, the next uh, regional power. I don't think China's interested in that. China's interested in trading and protecting its trade routes and basically making sure that it has open markets uh, for its own products. I don't think it's interested in playing superpower. Yeah, and um, I mean, China being opaque is interesting uh, because I was talking to um, a family member of mine and I said, it's it's almost like Wakanda for us, right? And in the West, it's like, holy cow, there's this giant, like, technologically <laughs> advanced society that has its own, like, richly developed, like, and areas. They have their own internet. They have their own, have their own internet. Yeah. They have their own tech products. And if you want to even try to go to some of these um, websites online, you you have to read their language, right? So you can't even just, like, and go you, there. You won't even understand the metaphors and, you know, the cultural layers and stuff. So it seems so un- inaccessible, right? Yeah. And, and so like, you know, at the same time, um, you know, talking about China as a model, getting back to tech for a second, um, one of the things China has done is it's firewalled its internet. And that's also had an economic benefit for them in the sense that it's it's almost like trade protectionism, right? Um, so uh, if you look at other uh, authoritarian states, there must be some enticing enticement to kind of look at, say, hey, what has China done here? How have they pulled this off? You know, maybe we should follow the the China model. Um, we know that China does uh, at least export a lot of CCTV camera stuff. Um, you know, what do you think about uh, China as as a tech model? And do you see in the Middle East or in authoritarian countries that you look into uh, China being a place that they're looking at replicating? Uh, it's interesting that um, I believe it was it 2015 maybe or 2016 that I think I was chatting with an Iranian activist. And this was a time when... Um, like the post-Iran deal period when it, it, it didn't look like the Iran, it looked like the Iran deal was working. And now, of course, now it's kind of falling apart. But uh, And that particular Iranian activist was quite depressed because the Iran deal, a lot of Iranian activists felt, of course, a lot of Iranian activists supported the deal because it meant the end of sanctions. Uh, and of course... Uh, you this know, is the nuclear deal. The nuclear deal, yeah. I mean, and of course, we're opposed to sanctions, but we felt a lot of uh, human rights activists, including the Ira- Iranian human rights activists, felt that uh, the Iranian the Iran nuclear deal um, sacrificed human rights uh, in order to get, um, you know, uh, yeah. ba- basically that too much was given away, right? So at the time, she was very depressed because she's like, um, is, is, is Iran going to become the next China? Is Iran going to become, is the Iran deal going to enable Iran to open up its economy 
but also allow the Iranian regime to measure, to basically control society with, you know, with, again, Chinese technology and surveillance technology and increase the regime's resilience to the point that it transitions from being a theocracy to being more of a military dictatorship or a single party dictatorship. Um, and, and, um, and of course, we know that eventually that didn't happen. But a lot of dictators in the region are very interested in that. They're very interested in the surveillance technology. They're very interested in, um, you know, this ability to kind of become completely uh, off the grid, you can say. You know, like, uh, like I own my internet. I own my, my, my public sphere. I completely, uh, I, I mean, I don't have to rely upon any. Of course, uh, it's a little simplistic. Uh, because keep in mind that China again is 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 a uh, you know uh, it it's it has a, a strong military. It's pretty much uninvadable, you know, um, and it doesn't have. It's not a U.S. ally. It's not an an ally of the West, right? The real dynamic in the Middle East, or the mean tension right now, and we're seeing it very much with the Saudi current Saudi crisis, is that these regimes are supposed to be. Uh, allies of the West, and they behave so badly. Like mm. Putin can kill journalists, right? Putin can 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 kill journalists, and he can you know, like hack elections. It's like I'm Putin, for God's sake, you know. <laughs> that's what I do. Yeah, like I, that's what I do. I'm I'm you know I'm that like I'm I'm your opponent, and I never actually said that I'm your friend. I never posed as your friend, right? But when Saudi Arabia does it, or when the United Arab Emirates does it, when or when Bahrain does it, it's it. That's what puts. Um, Western hypocrisy, really. Mm. Um, Very quickly, Ed, before we go, we come to uh, to the current situation. One last question about China. So, what do you think it would take for people in China to reclaim the public sphere? For uh, what what essentially is the the recipe for the CCP's success in controlling the public sphere, and what would it take for people to reclaim it? So, I, I think we should remember that China, like. Um, a generation ago used to have famines, right? And I think you mentioned earlier that in the 1980s when you were in school, basically, it was like finish your plate so that there, there, are, children so in China, there are children in China who can't find yeah. you know, food to eat. Kids in China right? are dying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the thing is this transformation happened in a very short time. There's a new generation of Chinese people who are growing up um, and they never had, they never had that experience. They, 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 never, they were never starving, right? Uh, and their aspirations, like their expectations for what life should offer them is different. One reason why dictators basically isolate, create this information uh, bubble around their people is because it's extremely disruptive. For example, it's very disruptive for, for a girl who's growing up in Saudi Arabia in a hyper-conservative society to be able to watch American TV and to see what the status is of women in another country, right? So one thing they achieve by making sure that their public sphere is closed. Uh, so, for example, um, like uh, you know, like I'm I'm pretty much active in the Oslo Freedom Forum community, and you know, it's organized by the Human Rights Foundation. Uh, and one of the the tech exhibits that we had earlier this year is you get to Google your own name or Google something, and you get the Chinese results. Like, mm -hmm. what results would you get in China? Mm -hmm. And there are certain things like Arab Spring that gets like it's as if it never happened. Wow. Right. 
so but this is using which uh, search engine? A Chinese search engine? Yes. So basically, they're routing it, like they're routing your request through, uh, like, so this is the result that you would get if you were basically uh, searching for wow. this, doing this web search in China, China right? Yeah. But the interesting thing is, again, within the Oslo Freedom, Freedom Forum community, the, of course, there are lots of Chinese activists, and there's a lot of advanced uh, um um, you know, conversations on the role of uh, decentralizing technologies, especially blockchain technologies, uh, and how they frustrate, um, you know, these kind of tech measures. Now, I believe that there are certain there are certain technologies which actually favor the individual versus the state, such as decentralizing technologies, such as blockchain. And then there are certain technologies that actually favor the state over the individual, such as artificial intelligence. Uh, or cloud centralization. Exactly, right? Uh, but then there's really interesting th stuff being done in the blockchain space. There is, for example, I believe a service, I, I'm not sure if, I, if I'm getting the name right, but I believe it's called Orchid, mm -hmm. which basically routes, uh, it, uh, it's basically an untraceable VPN, where, where it, which would allow, uh, basically you, you, you would donate part of your bandwidth for someone in China to use for to, to basically to to route so that uh, his his government can't uh, can can track him, mm. uh, and it's very early stage right now, and you know like basically success and failure, uh, but there are lots of technologists who actually believe that through these kind of technologies you can open up the Chinese uh, uh, what do you say public sphere basically you can open up the Chinese internet or allow people in China to access stuff that they, that they otherwise can't. Mm. I should note over here that uh, I believe the reason why the current uh, um, uh, uh, Chinese leadership has to be more repressive and more centralizing is because they rule over a population which is far more sophisticated than the population they ruled 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. And that's why they need to be repressive to hold, uh, you know, to hold this together. And they need to be increasingly repressive yes. going forward. So what does that mean for the 20s, for the 30s? That's the open question here. I mean, that's, I mean, are we going to look back at China as a vindication to this model, this whole idea that you, can't, you, can't, you can actually have a thriving and open and liberal economy without having uh, any political rights? Or is something going to happen, some breakage or some event which kind of validates uh, the liberal idea that says that you can't actually have an extractive political system. So you can't have an inclusive economic system within a, within an extractive political system for too long, and it's kind of incompatible. Right, and plus there there are also uh, very uh, gung ho about big data, about AI, pushing forward extreme like full speed ahead. Right, and to me, um, my personal opinion on that is that it's just as in China, uh, also in the United States and everywhere else that's trying to go ahead with this, um, that it seems to be um, problematic, or not seems to be, it, it is problematic in the sense that uh, while this big data suffocates human rights and, and uh, it's, uh, I don't like calling it just big data, right? I usually, when I'm writing, call it big data surveillance and, and so on. 